Brushwith is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences, including writers, musicians and composers, and of course other artists, and the cultural experiences that shape their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Charles Ray, one of the most singular voices in contemporary sculpture, with an extraordinary grasp of the key elements of his discipline, space, material, surface, scale, weight and mass, and a unique approach to imagery, drawing on a huge range of sources to create absorbing absorbing yet deeply ambiguous works. Crafted by hand and by cutting-edge technology, they often take years to come to fruition, made and remade in a variety of different patterns and prototypes and a range of materials and scales before being completed. Charles's output is famously small. He was born in 1953 and grew up in Chicago. He studied at the University of Iowa and then at the Mason Gross School of Art in New Brunswick, New Jersey. But he's regarded as a Los Angeles artist. He's now lived in LA for more than 40 years and was one of a legendary group of teachers at the University of California there, with colleagues including John Baldessari, Mike Kelly, Barbara Kruger and Catherine Opie. Charles's earliest works built on the legacy of modernist sculpture that he'd first come across through Roland Brenner, his teacher in Iowa, who'd worked under the British sculptor Anthony Caro at St Martin's in London. But immediately he connected that abstract tradition directly to the human body, performing with sculptural elements, often with absurd humour. In Plank Piece 1 from 1973, he propped his limp body against a wall with a plank of wood. In a work from 1981, he lay naked on a green steel shelf with a hole through which he put his arm which he painted that same green colour. He called it gangrene. Through the 1980s, his work took many forms, often relating to domestic objects and with moving or unstable elements, including a tabletop whose objects, including a plate and a flower pot, rotated almost imperceptibly, and a bathtub that was set into a wall. But in the 1990s, there was a major shift in his work. The human figure returned, only this time it wasn't his own living body, but sculpted ones. Initially, they were mannequins, one given Charles's own much simplified head, another one given a cast of his genitals. He made female mannequin sculptures, where the figures are uncannily enlarged by 30%. Later, he began sculpting increasingly complex and hard-won figures in fiberglass, an orgy in which all eight figures are cast from Charles's body, and Family Romance, a deeply creepy sculpture of a nuclear family in which all four figures are correctly proportioned but the same height of four feet five inches. His figures since have seemed to engage increasingly with the history of sculpture, often being subtle takes on time on a genre. Horse and Rider is a forlorn take on the tradition of equestrian statuary, in which Charles himself slumps on a similarly unheroic horse, his pose the very opposite of military or royal prowess. In Mime, he takes on the reclining sleeping figure, immediately evoking sculptures like the great ancient sleeping hermaphroditus in the Louvre. As for its title, as we'll hear, Charles links the state of sleep to the act of miming. Mime is one of a few works which Charles has made using cypress wood, carved with extraordinary delicacy by Japanese craftsmen. Another is Hinoki, Charles's sculpture of a fallen and rotting oak tree log, immaculately realised or even immortalised in this very different kind of wood to extraordinarily beautiful and strange effect. 
One of the extraordinary things about that work is that so much of the labour put into it in refining the interior surface of the hole running through the centre of the log remains hidden. So too in Tractor, the broken down farm vehicle that Charles found and reconstructed piece by piece in shiny aluminium. Seeing it, one's almost overwhelmed by that attention to detail. There are certain key words that Charles uses to describe elements of his practice. He uses the term panoima, the Greek word for breath, regularly to talk about the life force at the heart of a sculpture. He also uses the word embedment to mean the precise balance of space, material and social environmental context that he aims to achieve. And I was aware of how precisely his sculptures are embedded when I went to talk to him for this podcast at the Bourse de Commerce, the new museum in Paris founded by the collector Francois Pinot, who owns several of Charles's works, including Boy with Frog, an eight-foot white steel sculpture of a naked boy contemplating a hapless amphibian that he holds by one of its legs. Outside the ball stood horse and rider, glimmering in the even wintry light of a Paris morning, and yet the pathos, even the patheticness of the sculpture, belies that shimmering beauty, confounding all those equestrian sculptures elsewhere in the city, sitting as it does directly on the paving stones rather than high up on a plinth. It's one of the strangest sculptures I've seen, confronting us with a directness that we rarely see in works of this kind and bringing into play the entire space around it. And I began our conversation by asking Charles about space and embedment. Does he see space almost as a material in his work? I read recently someone was doing an article and they called up an ex-student and he said in this article, he was just asked to say something about me, and he said, Charles used to always um, push the idea that the sculpture is not made out of you know, steel, clay, or plaster, but space. I think when I was young, I read that... Uh, space was the sculptor's primary medium. And I don't know if the writer was thinking of that the way I think about it or how, or maybe he was, but it's something that just came with me. And it didn't come with me like I couldn't say it was, it stuck to me, but it was like pulling a thread on someone else's sweater and that thread never let go. You know, so it, it's always been not with me, but weaving around me, and I, I've uh, developed that. And um, it really was that thought and entrance into something people talk a lot about, how I talk a lot about this concept of embedment. I have this idea that the game's really over if someone comes to a square or to a room and says, oh, who put that here? How long is that going to stay here? How is that here? You know, so I've spent my whole lifetime trying to find a way to make something actually here, not referring to something that isn't here. You know, so that can uh, be thought of if you make the work or the sculpture out of space itself, that it's embedded in the space that it's in. You know, if you're making it here out of here, in a sense, you don't have to worry about putting it here. One of the things I'm really conscious of, though, is that the idea of space in your work has so many multiple dimensions in the sense that the internal spaces of the work are so important. I think you said about the boy and the frog, 
that the sculpture is all about that space between him and the frog. And for instance, when I saw Tractor, I was really conscious of all this internal space in these multiple parts that I couldn't see, yeah. even beyond that that very detailed, visible well, that, yeah, world. Yeah, that, 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 that gets very complex because what we just said is in a sense architectural space, the space, the space of this room, the space under the table, the space that's warm and the space that's cold outside that window. This is a little bit of an aside to that, but there was something that happened to me when I was young is just it becoming hard to gauge, especially in a city, what was inside and what was outside, or in Los Angeles what's inside and what's outside with the street work at night, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, that notion of the tractor, how it was said, maybe not how it was felt when I was making it, or what you said about the boy with frog is spoken, but that's not quite how I meant it. What I was talking about with boy with frog, one aspect of the making of a sculpture is finding its armature. And so, okay, what's what's an armature? You know, it's the wire that you put the clay on because the clay will just collapse, or the wire that you build the, uh, you know, you make it into a proto-shape of a man and you, know, you start putting plaster on it and modeling away. And it, it's like a, you know, rebar in a suspension bridge or something. And that's sculpturally really interesting, but you can also run with those kinds of ideas and the armature can become, you know, I don't know if this would be the right term, but a meta-armature. So the boy with frog is holding the frog in his hand, and he's looking at it. And what I meant was the armature of the sculpture was his curiosity, was the trajectory, both physically and mentally, of his gaze from his age, from his eyes, from how old he was, to holding the other, holding this frog. I mean, it was so much so that you don't notice this, but two nipples broke that triangulation and of the eye to the frog, and or made a triangulation. And so I had to erase one, but you don't even notice it. But the the one on the um, his proper left side is is just not there, because when it was there, it broke the trajectory of the vision, you know, of him holding. That there's more involved in that sculpture than that, you know, in terms of also, you know, its placement, its scale, you know. But the tractor isn't really so much about a space that you can't see. Um, I mean, the frog's kind of interesting as well because the internal aspect of the frog, it's like the first thing we open up when we're in uh, primary school. It is, yeah. You know, they give us an X-Acto knife and a... Sink and a frog, you know, and you like open this thing up and you, know, you pull out the liver and this and that, and um, so the boy is contemplating the other in a, in a sense. But that subject or that notion isn't what the sculpture and what the armature is built to demonstrate or is built to depict, uh, because the notion of the boy holding the frog also goes in reverse all the way back through the trajectory to the rebar again. And it's an element, the subject. Someone told me, oh, the boy with frog, that's why, you know, it's this kid contemplating the other for the first time in his life. Or someone else told me it's why we invented electricity or discovered electricity, his curiosity, you know, of holding this thing out and thinking about it. Um, 
there's a scale to that sculpture. There is a color to the sculpture. There is a materiality to the sculpture. There's three different forms of realism in the sculpture. And there's the subject of the sculpture. To me, the subject isn't any greater than any of the other elements that I just spoke of, you know. So it's in a matrix and, you know, there is a meta-meaning perhaps that is something that we can't really speak about, that the subject of the sculpture and the material of the sculpture and the color of the sculpture are sculpting. And I think the subject is just one aspect of the uh, media of what I'm doing. I wanted to talk to you about materials because one of the things, for instance, in the catalogue for the Bourse and Pompidou shows that we see is that there's this documentation of the birth of projects, the slow gestation of projects, the journey through materials. Can you tell me something about how rigorous that process is in terms of the search for the right kind of material for the for the sculpture? Well, it's not rigorous at all. My studio has been referred to a lab, but it's not really because there isn't a long-term goal to you know, break a genetic code or to, you know, 100 years to find a cure to cancer or something. There, there isn't a simple trajectory of, of trying to understand something. It's much more um, messy or casual. If you wanted a great portrait of me at work in my studio, you'd just come upstairs to my office and take a picture of me asleep in my hammock <laughs> because I'm so tired from walking in the morning that that's usually what I'm doing. Right. You know, but I'm there. And um, things are going on around me. And um, materiality and the right material has always been important. In the last several years, I've had the notion and ability to work through form and work through patterns. So a work might be in clay, then it might be in fiberglass, then it might be in plaster, as all those materials have different ways of handling and you know methods and they hold hands in different ways and different assistants are better at different materials and all that might be a temporal aspect that a work passes through and in the meantime you know I don't really care what material it's going to end up in but I think about it you know go oh you know I wonder what that would be you know how would that be and it isn't a final stage of any of it. There's kind of a structural reasoning often that comes up. You know, it's casual. It's over my thinking. It's over a long period of time how I might be, why I might be thinking about wood one morning, how it breaks, how it's carved, how it's crafted, how I might be thinking of a subject of a sculpture, like the crafting of miming. A mime, in a sense, is a craft. And, um, it has an art of miming. At three in the morning, the art of carving and the craft of miming might superimpose on each other, and it might simply make a possibility of a material for a sculpture come up through my ideas of what it will do. You know, what what will it do to the sculpture? What will it do to the space around it? Uh, what will be turned inside out? What will you know go into you, come out of you? You know, uh, looking at it, the sculpture of the sleeping mime which is here in this show at the, at the uh, Pompidou is also made in a loom and that came about through many years looking at the pattern pattern was 
white fiberglass, but you could say plaster. People understand it better. But uh, I have some people that work very well with uh, fiberglass, and it's like plaster. It's a harder. It first was clay, and it's a softer material, and you can work faster and manipulate it. When it's in fiberglass or plaster, it's white. You can see the form more clearly. It's also harder to grind it and sand it, and it's slower. And that grinding and sanding bring a different kind of formality than the speed of working with clay. So for many years, this piece of the sleeping mime, and my question was, is he miming or is he sleeping? And I was you know, thinking about the armature of mimes, which is, a, you see it in Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton. It's like a puppet, a string puppet, but the string is internal. It's within the mime itself. You know, they pull up and they turn on, in a sense. So that was one question that interests me or way into the sculpture. Yet when I would look at the sculpture, the image of the mime sleeping on the cot, it was white, it was like a cloud. It was almost a surreal image. And it really bothered me in the sense that I understood where the image began and ended, where I began and ended, what the frame was between me and the sculpture. I was always looking down at this kind of white form, almost like a cloud, this surreal image of this mime sleeping. And I couldn't break that. And what I really was trying to break or sculpt into was a a bridge or a deeper tentacle between the sculpture and me and me and the sculpture. So the sculpture would enter me and I would enter the sculpture. When there was a frame or a line between me and the work, I knew exactly where I was. And the sculpture was here, I'm here. And then one morning, which I was just saying before this, I was thinking, because I worked with the carvers in Japan, could I superimpose the art of carving over the art of miming? And would that somehow build a complexity in the sculpture that came up through the artifact of making the sculpture? And, um, you know, I would leave it to the viewer if it does or not. But um, that, anyway, is an idea of materiality and how, how in that particular sculpture it came up. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Uh, who was the first artist whose work you loved? Well, I think it was when I was very young, and it was the idea or the potentiality of being an artist. And my father was a painter, and for Christmas he gave me you know, a coffee table art book. It must have been, in, I don't know, 62 or 63. And there it was artists working in their studios, and I... I always remember Magritte, and there was a bottle that he painted of a figure on the bottle, and he had paint, and, you know, there was just something that seemed, um, you know, that I could pass into. And it wasn't really that I understood his work or liked his work, you know. It just would have been enough to have the paint he had on his hands on my hands somehow. You know, it would somehow allow me to function in the world. 
That's really fascinating. So you sort of identified with the with the notion of being an artist as more than you did with a particular the surrealist. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I remember having very difficult moments. I remember once being on a bus to go back to Chicago. It's maybe like a six hour ride, seven hour ride, and I was just having a very hard time getting out of my self consciousness because I couldn't draw. I mean, there's no way in hell I could draw a figure. Like many people, I superimpose that ability on being an artist, and um, I could fake it and pretend I could draw a figure, and I could, um, you know, kind of copy Picasso-esque distortion of a line drawing of a figure, you know. But I knew deep down I couldn't handle the proportions and, you know, the shading. I, I, I couldn't look at a model and put the model on a page of paper via my hands. You know, it, it just, it, it wasn't happening. Nor could I at that time, you know, really sit down and write a college paper, organize myself to express an intellectual idea or, you know, put two proto-ideas together to create an idea. But I could fake it, you know, I could, I could totally do that or, you know, write a paper by copying other things. and But I always could build. And um, when I was young, I once built a raft. I had I must have been seven or six. I put so many nails in it, it sunk. And um, it was the building of it that I so enjoyed. And so I ended up faking my way into university and um, art classes and uh I accidentally got placed at a very young age in a advanced sculpture class just by chance. I talked my way into it. It was the only class open. And um, the idea of drawing was forbidden. It was a Roland Brenner student of Anthony Carlos, and he had come to Iowa via London and was teaching high modernist sculpture, um, very Carlo-esque. And we move things, we drew with real materials, move things around the floor until they lock together. And here, two things happened. I was taught that that was drawing and preliminary studies, just propping things up, looking at them, having them fall in front of you. And two, eventually that those structures in their own dynamic, before they were welded, were interesting in themselves. And maybe most importantly, or equally as importantly, when I still had trouble with my hands, like painting something, you know, a solid color or making a nice clean cut or weld. Uh, it was kind of a physical, dys- you know, like a hand dyslexia or something. I just didn't have those skills and I found them hard to acquire. And so I kind of didn't weld things together, just let things be propped together. And that brought a kind of anxiety, which I think is still in my work today. But maybe, as I said, more important is what I did learn how to do was ask graduate students to cut a piece of metal for me or to weld something together for me and to become friends or colleagues with people who were much older than me who would then come in and like cut something for me or how to ask them to cut something or how to make it okay for them to come into the undergraduate studio and cut something for me or how to allow them to allow me to drag an I-beam into the graduate studio and have them bend it for me. You know, that became 
an early entrance into fabrication, you know, which has been, um, you know, for many years a tool for me. But, but it's interesting you talking about building and also drawing, because I know that you've been making these works recently with paper, and you you call them drawings, is that right? There's this Japanese paper. Could you say something about that material, and why is that drawing as opposed to use of any other material? The paper began uh, simply enough. It didn't become a way of searching for a new material or... What it was is um, I draw flowers in the evening. And um, at the beginning of doing that, I I would often just give them to my wife, Sylvia Gaspardo Morrill. And, uh, you know, she really liked them. One season, I was drawing uh, on paper plates for Sylvia. And, you know, I'd make these kind of beautiful flower drawings on a plate and... uh, um, she really liked them and was kind of putting them up in the uh, cabinet at home where you would normally put china or something. And the problem was they turned brown almost in a week because the paper doesn't need to last, right? You're supposed to throw it out, yeah. and it's not, it's not archival. And so I thought, oh, I, you know, I know what I can do. I'll just make my own paper plates, you know, out of archival paper. And I figured out how, just a little bit of minor research on how they make paper plates and then found another way. So, you know, we've got a screen and pulp and we're just making our own paper and pressing them in a big squeezer, you know, and then drying them. And I was drying on them. Sylvia was happy and I was happy. And then we started using a vacuum form to push them in a mold and that squeezed, you know, they dried quicker and didn't bend up and warp as much. And even the ones that bent and warped, I was drawing on. And that kind of interests me. You know, then it progressed to drawing on, you know, making paper bowls and platters and stuff. But, you know, mostly things that you could buy in paper from, you know, Ikea or someplace for, you know, a picnic. And then there was always leftover paper. There was always a little bit left over from making a bowl or something and one day I told my assistant I'll just throw that paper in the corner of this relief you know we had them you know we had this stuff just laying around the studio or a mold of a figure you know and you know just you know throw some paper in his belly and uh, then I would have these kind of paper fragments from reliefs and I just would draw almost as if the relief wasn't there but flower drawings on that and people really liked it and but it, it just came because there was extra paper being, you know, wet, you know, extra pulp being pulled through the screens for these paper plates. And then one day, you know, I wondered if you could make a sculpture this way, you know. And I had an old mold laying around of a, of a friend who uh, I never thought of this as a sculpture, but um, was a friend who's a musician and it was for a record album of his, you know, it was this foam version of him. But um, I had the mold from that, and I told uh, I told my studio, I, yeah, see what happens if you could make a sculpture, and it worked. You know, it was like a drum; it was hard, stable, but not paper mache. It was like you hit it; it's like a drum. It was like watercolor paper. You know, so that kind of opened the door to paper as a material, and um, the first completed. Sculpture was Return to the One, which is in the rotunda at the Bourse. And Return to the One refers to Platino's notion of turning inward and slowly reuniting 
with the unity or the oneness of the cosmos. That sculpture, the initial sculpting was in 2016 when uh, Trump was waging a war on decency and um, eventually became president, you know. And I was so shaken and, you know, that I started reading Platino and, you know, just moving myself inward. And this portrait of me is not really a portrait of me. But that was the first sculpture that I made totally in paper. And um, I made it as a drawing. And then I thought simply the, uh, instead of pen, paper, and charcoal, space and time were the medium on the manifold of the paper. Now that might be an attempt at trying to speak in a meta language because you could say, well, what the fuck is he talking about? (laughs) It's just a paper sculpture. You know, and I would have to say that's true until you start thinking about it more and see there's some work that was developed after that that um, I had that poetic notion already in my head. So like the Algardi crucifix, um, I thought, well, I was involved in, one, in a show for uh, Tom Hill, for the Hill Foundation that I curated with in his Algardi crucifix, which charts Christ's last breath. And there's even a knot on the loincloth that's just beginning to come undone. And, you know, he's expiring. And, um, you know, how do you deal with that crucifix and that notion of the last breath and of Christ in 2022? And I thought, well, I could deal with it through making a drawing through dealing with the drawing, all of my interests of my life and my thinking and my sculpting kind of came to bear on this notion of space and time and embedment could be my medium back to that moment on the bus where I realized I couldn't draw. I realized in a sense I can draw. And um, I really thought of the cultural space and the space around as what was forming this study of Algardi. And wasn't trying to update the Algardi because it doesn't need to be updated. And, um, you know, they're just things that I very much often think of Catholic structure because I grew up a Catholic and, you know, what kind of effect it has on culture and on me and uh, both positive and negative you know, what is Christ's last breath? You know, what is the notion of a God? You know, is since if you're a sculptor, I could just as easily say, well, you know, if men don't have souls, then gravity itself is God. And what we have is bodies and a physicality. We are, in a sense, like a Cezanne, apple, or orange. We're just undeniably there, embedded I mean, the beauty of a Cezanne apple and orange is you cannot ever remove it from the painting or the world. It is just physically, absolutely, and fundamentally there. And um, as are we. You know, I was wondering if the extension of Algardi's crucifix in paper, and, you know, it's 10 feet tall, and, you know, like I, I was always very impressed by a work of Carl's called uh, Early One Morning because yeah. it barely stands. I mean, it's so structurally, it's all perfectly straight, but it's structurally extended 
to, you know, I think there are pre-bends and things. So when it, they do bend, they bend to the, their straightness. And it's so, uh, you know, got heavy and light elements in it. And it's so drawn out and has such a beautiful um, disjunction in it. It's just taking the room and, and turning physical space into an accordion. And um, it kind of finds, in a certain sense, or through sculpture, defines what is divine in an abstract notion. And um, the Algardi has been made in many different materials. He made it in many different materials. And I thought, well, making it in paper and extending its scale, not just to make it big, but as scale, as material. If the, if the crucifix was made in bronze and silver and brass, I didn't think I was making it in paper. I thought I was making it in scale. So then I thought, you know, perhaps extending the structure of paper to absolutely limit of what it could do is what would bring the divine to the cross, to the crucifix, to Christ, in a way, you know, without having to go to church and pray to him. In a way, I think you may have answered my next question, which is which historical artist do you turn to the most today? Obviously, you made the Algardi sculpture very recently but are there sort of consistent touchstones i know you you've referred to early one morning of sculpture i know very well because i'm lucky enough to live in the uk and therefore have seen yeah. early one morning relentlessly yeah. over my life you know that seems to me to be such a talismanic sculpture in so many ways for you but do you have sort of touchstones that are around you in your studio as you know as images or or, or that you just consistently refer to absolutely nothing <laughs> really and i just put posters in the men's bathroom i put uh the history of World Cup soccer balls. And in the women's bathroom, I had birds of California. (laughs) So we do have those were the things that were pinned to the wall. And then I did find one one other thing, and I actually wrote about it a little bit in the catalog. I have a little model of the Hoopkey bird in the office. That's there, and that's not pinned to the wall, but screwed to the wall. And that the Hopki bird is very um, sacred in Muslim culture. And uh, the bird was a spy. He watched what mankind was doing. And there were great caravans of gold and inventions and oasises and silk and riches and wars. And he returned to Allah to tell him the plight of man. And Allah sent him back to the people with a very simple message. And that message was, honor the creator, not the creation. And so I guess I'm asking you to honor me, (laughs) (laughs) rather than my sculptures. But it kind of falls apart there. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The app offers access to more than 60 cultural institutions through a single download, ranging from the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles to the Judd Foundation in Texas and the Design Museum in London. If you download Bloomberg Connects, you'll also find digital guides to numerous UK cultural spaces outside London. The Pallant House Gallery in West Sussex, for example, holds a world-class collection of modern British art, and you can discover highlights, as well as the story of how the 18th century townhouse became a 21st century art gallery, in the guide on the app. You can also explore exhibitions and go behind the scenes in an audio series of secret spaces. To explore interactive guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. 
The app is available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Which museum or gallery do you visit the most? I, you know, there isn't one. You know, I mean, when I'm in New York, I spend a lot of time at the at the Met, and um, in Paris, I spend uh, a lot of time at the Gamay, and uh, in Osaka, the Ceramic Museum. And I wanted to come back to the Met because there's been a, a few sculptures in your work where you've referred very directly to Met sculptures. There's the Great Eleusinian Relief, which yes. features in one of your yeah. work, and I wonder what made you refers so very directly to that work? Oh, to the relief, it's because it's a super interesting object to me, and um, it's a hybrid object, and that was my initial interest in it. So for listeners who don't know, it, you know, it's there's two goddesses giving to uh, seed and to a, to a boy and um, giving the gift of agriculture, gift of seed, and um, the original relief is in Athens, and um, it's really beautiful to see it there. The one at the Met, as I said, is a hybrid, and how it was made was somebody in the 19th century had seven fragments of a Roman copy. As you know, the Romans copied Greek sculpture yeah. for their gardens and homes and whatnot. But they copied it in a different style, of course, because it was a different culture. So these seven fragments were found, and then to give them some worth, I don't know how it worked or who was talked into what, but a plaster mold was taken of the original, and the Roman fragments were inserted in their proper location. So it's the work at the Met is aged enough that the color between the plaster mold work, you know, the plaster duplicate, and the marble has kind of become less distinguishable. But you can see where... These are not just through the lines, the fragmented lines, but also the style is really culturally different. And it's, to me, a beautiful thing to look at and think about. Well, the whole relief is also another hybrid of um, how it was originally sculpted. And so a goddess's hand is over, uh, I'm familiar with the names, but if I pronounce them, you'll just laugh at me because my (laughs) pronunciation is so poor. Uh, is pouring a fluid or something. We don't know what, but something's going on in the boy's head. And my friend, the scholar, classical scholar, Richard Neer, I asked him, what's going on with that? And he told me the whole relief was copied from a wine drinking cup. I said, really? He said, yeah, of Pandora. So everything is reversed. Instead of two goddesses, there's two gods, and there's Pandora. And Pandora is an android, and Pandora was turned by the gods loose on the world, on mankind, because of our sin of stealing fire. And it's the moment they're animating Pandora, or in Greeks thought uh, life was a fluid, and they're pouring the fluid of life into a hole in her head to then set her off upon the world. So in my mind, one of the things that interested me in looking at that work was that hybrid as well, the other hybrid of the two, the, the Greek and Roman culture, but the compositional reversal and change, you start to feel somewhere that the, the, the narrative is neither here nor there, and there, it isn't a meta-composition or a meta-narrative. 
but there's something else that's working that's harder to articulate that exists between the drinking, and it's not the formality, but something that exists between the wine drinking bowl, the relief. And then what I did is I had a great interest in this relief. I used to, with a watch I used to track, for instance, how long and where my eyes went from like the boy's genitals up around the drapery of the goddesses to, you know, just how and where I ended up on the relief. So I was very drawn into it in a physical way. And then I realized that I could bring a third hybrid to the work of American culture, 2019, and um, I would cut it with a robot and use a robotic language and let the robot make decisions on the machine paths and tool paths, and that would all be embedded in this work subtly, as subtly, in a sense, as the difference between the Roman and the Greek sculpting was, that there would be this third culture brought into the surface. And um, then to my surprise, when Richard Neer saw it, he said, oh my God, you brought the bedazzlement back to it because the Greeks were very into you know, a sculpture being an object that bedazzled. Richard always told me you have to remember that like a Kuros figure was the only smooth thing in an extremely rough world. You know, there were like rutted roads, people with boils on their chin, dripping pus, uh, rough houses, stinky fires, torn clothes, and you would behold a Kiros figure, and it would bedazzle you in how it was in then time and space. And uh, it's amazing how, how it's kind of tumbled or slipped in time and space to us. And while we're not votive, as the Greeks were, to the Kiros, something for me at least, is happening between in and with the sculpture and the space and the cultural moment and time as well as the archaic time. And it's almost as if, you know, the Kuros comes up towards me, I go back towards it, and it's not that we meet in 1300. I don't mean it that way, but we meet, you know, in some really interesting meta space, I think. Sculptural time. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. 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 But sculpture then dissolves away too, and that's the beauty of it. There's another transparency. The sculpture disappears like an object in a gravitational field. The gravitational field is there. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? My wife, Sylvia, has a great interest in Asian art. And so when we would go to encyclopedic museums here and there when we were first going out, you know, I would want to head into the uh, Greek section and she would want to go the other way and go upstairs to the Asian. I just see, like, what is all these, like, arms and stylization? How do you get... I asked her, how do you get through it? They all, you know, uh, you know, they all have the same hip and the same... You know, it's like... And, you know, I don't understand that culture. I don't know, you know, where, what they're reverberating off of. What am I supposed to do in here? And she said, just try to spot the fakes. And it opened up a world to me, not to become, you know, a connoisseur of spotting fakes, but it got me to slow down and start looking at differences between things that at first seemed very, very similar to me. And then a few years later, we had some time when we were in Chicago, we took a flight for a day, a day trip to Cleveland, and visited the Cleveland Museum. 
and uh, Sherman Lee had curated or uh, collected for the museum a great, great collection of Asian sculptures. And uh, it was like a second awakening for me, in a way. And so, you know, in a loose interpretation, that affected me. Also, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Japan. That's affected me a lot. Um, working with uh, Yubaku and Hinoki and carvings. and Like in Hinoki, I didn't know how it would meet the ground and for various reasons how it would sit on the ground. And then I asked Yubaku, I said, what would you do? And he took me to the Miho Museum and he showed me how a Buddha was set on these bases and he suggested that. And then we talked some more. And, you know, working on that sculpture became a way of life and I didn't know how to finish it and I didn't know how to let go of it and I just kept coming back and making small changes and we'd work on it some more and I thought of these problems like how will it be not presented, not displayed, but how it would be on the floor. And I was always coming with kind of like high modernist notions that a floor would be the last element of a sculpture, not something that sat on. That would be something I could talk to Yubaku about. But at a certain point, I let go. And it, the Hinoki became, in my mind, a Japanese work of art. And it, I'm totally 100% responsible for it. But, you know, my authorship dissipated. One of the things that reading about Hinoki, you've written very beautifully about that work and about your first experience of that was seeing this decaying tree in a meadow which in a way was a kind of a perfect sculpture in a kind of perfect space in its own right and it's in almost like the herculean process of finding an interest in that image and then making your own sculpture that would then work in space as you say it, it, it seems to me to have been an extraordinarily difficult process right from the start no but it wasn't difficult it was every day when i say every day i meant it was just my way of life so you know, I was driving up there. I was going to Santa Cruz to often to look at a boat that I eventually bought and then had to get ready to sail down the coast. I was working on things in the studio, but I had time. And and so I was spending a lot of time on the central coast, on the road, going up, thinking about my life and things. And I caught a glimpse of this log off the road. And, you know, it just drew me in and it was beautiful. But I didn't understand the structure. I didn't understand what it was and um, how it was. It was pictorial in the field. The field was across a little creek. The road was then in the distance, and it was on an angle in the meadow. There was nothing else around, very pastoral. But then it had fallen, and how it fell and what the pattern of the broken limbs were and how you could tell what had been the bottom, what had been the top, uh, wasn't so clear. And then it had this great, chamber that ran through it with the whole internal matrix that I realized was initially the heartwood. You know, and you see a log, it's empty in the middle, it's like a cartoon almost. And it had those qualities of being like a cartoon, but not. You know, it had a kind of perfect logness. But I found out who owned the land, and it was a winery, and I asked them if I could take molds of it. They said no. I asked them if I could buy it. They said no. I got everybody involved except uh, President Clinton you know, <laughs> to call them up. They said no. And then um, another winery you know, told me they were just no people. And, um, you yeah, know, that was the way it was. So I thought, okay, I'll just find my own log. And then every day for almost a year, I would have an assistant, and we'd go off looking for logs and 
you know, and there was never one like that. Then I realized I wasn't interested in logs, but I was interested in that particular structure. So eventually I just got some firemen's chainsaws and a bunch of trucks and parked the trucks in the local town and had one truck running back and forth so there wouldn't be too much commotion. And I cut it up, took two weeks. You know, I cut it up and uh, carted it off piece by piece by piece by piece. The underside was rotted, and that I didn't know until I started cutting it, and um, did it in broad daylight. You know, people were driving by and stuff. We just looked like we worked for the winery, and we're moving this old log. And I still didn't know how I would make it. And uh, eventually, you know, I thought about it. It had been out there so long, and it looked like it had been on the ground for 30 years, and maybe it would have another five before it collapsed and I thought a lot about the bugs and the UV and the weather and the rain and the storms that were rotting it and crushing it and pushing it back to the earth. So I thought of that concept of, that I think about a lot, Panoima, and I thought I would make a large inflatable, but not like a balloon. The internal structure would still be there. You would still be able to look through it. So the inflatable would be what was wood, the walls. And I actually went to uh, Lincoln, Nebraska in the middle of the winter and talked to, uh, it's where they do the balloons for Macy Day parades and where they invented the hot air balloon. You know, there were companies that thought they could do it, and then I realized eventually that the tailoring, the feet of its construction, because I didn't want to use print, but I would just do every nick and cranny, and mm. that would be too much. The tailoring would overwhelm what I was, the notion of Panoima. Mm. And I thought um, intentionality, the carvers, could bring Panoima back to the, to the work. I talked to several carvers, but there was this young guy who, you know, he, he was very challenged by it. And we got in trouble because we bought up all the hinoki that was in supply for one year. Then they banned him for buying it for five. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a sacred wood that they right. carved it. Then, you know, it just became a way of life. I would go there and... They were copying it. and But that gets to the beginning of our conversation about space and the architectural space when you were talking about the room. And to me, there were some different spatial matrices of that piece's embedment. So when you first entered the room, it was pictorial, like I found it in the meadow. Unremovable, but pictorial, like a, a log with its branch. And it's up on these blocks, these wood blocks. And as you approach... That space is architectural. You can go under it and around it, and you see that the branch isn't elevated. The blocks are made out of the same material. It creates a kind of like the space under a chair, you know, around it. And as you get even closer and spend more time with it, you feel it. You feel the kinesthetics of it, the cracking of the wood, the different torquing of the entire structure that has been carved into it. As you spend that time, then you start to get to the sense, and you see the different hands, like you see a Monday morning, you see a lazy hand, you see a very intense hand. It becomes monumental in these different aspects of its detail, which are just natural phenomena, which then, again, at another distance, as you step back from it, dissolve into tree texture. And then the first half of the project 
was carving in the same kind of detail that's done outside the internal matrix of the trunk. So, you know, I, I thought there were these different spaces, the architectural, the sculptural, the natural, and the theological. I thought it was God that saw what was in the middle of the trunk. But then if you see selfies, it's just people, like they put their baby carriage on one end and run around to the other end and take a picture of their kid, you know. And they all, every one of those pictures looks exactly the same. <laughs> you know, you see an out-of-focus tree, and you see a dark hole, and you see their kid at the far end or their <laughs> girlfriend or their wife. So what to do? <laughs> Which writers or poets do you return to the most? It would be easy to say Twain. The Met now up there is like two pieces, Huck and Jim and Sarah Williams. Boy with Frog is here, and that kind of came out of Twain as well. Twain to Europeans probably isn't uh, read or understood, but he, it's like the American um, Odyssey. Yeah. Iliad and Odyssey. It's it's a, a voyage of a boy running from an abusive father and a runaway slave on the Mississippi River. And the river is both cultural and geological. And um, I originally became present to one the book Spatiality. There's a moment in the book that is charted in the piece that's here called Huck and Jim, where they're standing on the river's edge at night and they're having a debate about the cosmos, and Jim, the runaway slave, thinks the stars were created, and Huck, the fleeing boy, thinks they always were. And he reckons there are too many of them that no one would have ever had the time to create them all. They're looking at the Milky Way and the entire firmament. And Jim says to Huck, well, when Huck says, well, who made them? And Jim says, the moon, she laid them. And then Huck says, well, if you've ever seen a frog lay her eggs, I reckon that could be true. And if you have, which I have, you know, there's the streams of spermosa and just thousands and millions and billions of eggs trailing off from it. And, and that part, chapter 19 of that book, is incredibly spatial, where they're talking about the river at night and the candles that go on and off in cabins are their clock and uh, a steamship coming up around a bend and belching out uh, just sparks out of its chimneys and then flying up into the air a great distance away and that reflection in the water uh, it's both above and below the ship and how then that mixes with the stars that are reflecting you can't tell the difference between the embers and the stars and a sound you'll see in the day the flash of an axe chopping wood for the ship and just when the axe comes back up, you hear the sound of the first chop. You know, because it takes that time to drift across and how there's the gray band. And Twain talked about the river being for a steamboat captain who had to know the entire river because of fog and its shifting banks and bars and different aspects of its changing. Had to know it by heart, but it was... A, like memorizing a Bible that was completely being rewritten every day. And then you not only had to memorize the Bible, but you had to memorize it in reverse because you had to turn around and come back up 
and you had to know the snags and they're changing and you know what happens in the light and and that river isn't just in that sense geological but it's also cultural you know and everything along it is changing and morphing and developing that's where i think twain's kind of genius was and um the book is very american you know there's a there's a point in a chapter towards the end of the book where the uh bounty hunters are really close to capturing huck and jim and in the entire novel huck never once questions the institution of slavery is just an accepted fact and never questions it though he's closely bonded with jim so close that at this moment in the novel when they're almost caught huck is ruminating he goes yeah i helped steal because he was miss watson's slave he goes i helped steal miss watson's property because he helped jim escape because she never did me no wrong you know maybe she put me in sunday clothes and tried to school me but her intent was good and here i am stealing what's rightfully hers her property and he's ruminating he goes all right then fuck it i'll go to hell but i ain't gonna turn him in and that moment that literary character believes he is going to go to hell but he's you know rather than turn his his connection his friend his you know someone he's bonded to another human being in that he'll suffer eternal damnation rather than that and i thought at that moment this was originally for the whitney museum of american art i thought that was as great an american moment as i could find and it was in a novel a novel of a river and a geology and a culture and uh, the sculptures like boy with frog and uh sir williams and huck and jim are like oxbow lakes that fell out of the novel and um the oxbow lake is when there's a deep curve in a river and then the river finds the shortest cuts across the curve finds the shortest route and then that turns into a lake its own right its own geology and exists forever after separate from the river and um my sculptures that came out of the twain novel are to me that way they're like oxbow lakes what music or other audio do you listen to as you're working i never listen to music as i work you know when i listen to music it's from my cell phone on headphones when i fly so as soon as i get to the airport i hate it so much and i hate being with the people that i put these headphones on i turn this music on mostly from my youth you know because it sort of just transports me back and uh then i take them off when i land and you know that's it though i do have an audio component of my life and it's here so these are all the last like 20 minutes of my walk in the morning where oh, so they're voice memos you're showing yeah, me voice they're, memos they're, yeah they're my they're my voice and are they so that's the sound of nature the sound of the environment around no it's my make me i speak my thoughts ah. of what i was thinking about on the walk almost like a diary in a way that's interesting and does that feed into the work you listen back to them in any way sometimes i'll have an assistant transcribe a couple or one of them uh and you know if i'm doing writing an essay and I'll pull from from it that way. You know the essay in the Boris Pompidou catalog came from that, maybe three transcriptions put together. It that brings me to the next question which is 
is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? And I think I know the answer to this one. Oh, my walking? Yes. Yeah, it's really important to me. And uh, I walk um, at least three hours a day. Then I swim generally for an hour. But in order to work and to accomplish that walk, I have to get up extremely early. I used to walk in the mountains, and then for various reasons and injuries, um, Sylvia, my wife, got nervous about my trucking off into the hills of California, which are, you know, wilderness, but, you know, pretty much surrounded by suburbia. So then I, I started walking, you know, just in the city every morning. I walked for three, three and a half hours. And um, then every city that I visit, I have a walk. So it's not so much a ritual as much as it's, you know, I walk in the morning because there's no people around and I don't like seeing people. And uh, I can think I have more time than during the day. I put my day and thoughts and, you know, fears and stuff into order. So now, though, I'll walk and then I get home and um, it's, you know, 5 o'clock, 5.15, and then I go back to bed. Right. And I'll get, I'll sleep until 9. Fairly recently... I was attacked in an early morning walk and uh, thrown on the ground and kicked and beat and whatnot. And I was thinking today, the, the, the attacker didn't rob me, didn't want money. And everyone said, oh, did they want your wallet? And I said, no. They said, oh, they were just crazy. I said, I don't know. But I was thinking I was robbed. And I was robbed of this um, ease of stepping out the door at three in the morning and going for a walk. Mm. I, you know, I'm still thinking about it. If it's foolish to go back out or yeah. the world is changing. And so, you know, one can be robbed, obviously, in different ways or rituals broken. But, um, you know, I suppose uh, if I didn't walk anymore, it would change. Although, you know, I, I was also in a serious car wreck about it two years ago, and it didn't really stop my ability to work. So... Well, that's good to hear. Maybe if I stopped walking, I would still work. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes when you're in the middle of a ritual, it doesn't seem like you would. I, I used to smoke two packs of cigarettes a day many, many, many years ago. You know, I quit when I was 40. But what was difficult about quitting was the thought that you would never be able to work again. Right. And it was true. You know, I could never go back to the studio again and sit and look at a pile of steel and wonder what to do mm. while I was having a cigarette. You know, when I tried to do that without a cigarette, it was ridiculous. So I learned to work in a different way. But but the walks have certainly prompted all sorts of works to emerge, haven't they? I mean, I'm thinking of um, shoe tie, which you relate to the experience of when you were on walks in the mountains more and you would uh, bend to tie your shoe. But there's the age old adage not to tie your shoe because it's the danger of, you said, mountain lions. Are yeah, about, bite you yeah. on the neck. Yeah. So even if it's not a direct formation of a work of art in those moments, things emerge from that experience of walking or the sort of uh, meditation. I think things emerge from experience. So I think if I didn't walk, things would emerge. You know, uh, if I also sail, but, you know, like aspects can emerge from that. But I, I think it's from experience that work emerges, you know. And so those are experiences that I felt because I walk. But if I didn't walk, I would feel other experiences that work would emerge from, I think.
could live with one work of art, what would it be? It's such a hard question because they're all so interconnected. Yeah. Not just to time, but to other works. Like right behind at the Met of the Kuros, there's the brother-sister relief or column. And then right behind that is a relief of the girl with the bird. And yeah. then if you turn on left, you know, you know what's hard about that question? It's the opposite. But let's just say in these voice memos, I had a little voice memo on magic. And it was about a friend of mine. Well, it started being about a witch doctor in Haiti. And he could make a man turn into a chicken. And then he could make that chicken turn into a cat. Then he could make that cat turn into a wolf. Then he could make that wolf turn into a bird. But what he could never, ever do is make a man totally and completely disappear. He could only morph it into something else. But I had a friend who was a magician, and he could make a thimble disappear. And I just never believed it. And I thought he was hiding it somewhere. And so one day I took every bit of furniture out of my bedroom, and I asked him to just in the stand there in the nude, and I gave him a thimble that wasn't his. And I said, make this disappear. And he did, completely and totally disappear. But he couldn't make a sharp object like a sailor's needle disappear. He couldn't make a quarter disappear. He said it was too big. So what I did as an experiment, I said, well, could you do this? I got another thimble. I put a little water in it. And I said, could you make these disappear? And he shut his hand and opened it, and there was just a puddle of water on his palm. He could only make the thimble disappear. Then I asked him, if you believed in a god, if there was such a thing as God, could a god make a planet disappear? And then the discussion is a very strange question. So let's say you could make a Jupiter disappear. Well, what about, you know, it's, it, it becomes very complicated question because what about the red spot, all right? That would disappear. And what about all the poems about the red spot? Would those disappear? You know, would the god Jupiter disappear? So to have one favorite piece of art that you would live with is all these connections to other pieces of art, like the poetry connected to Jupiter, start to disappear in a strange way. They become out of focus. So somehow to take for me a favorite work of art that I would live with, it takes the dynamism out of the relationship to art somehow, you know, where the causality crumbles or something. Or... Lastly, what's art for? What's art for? Nothing. And that's the beauty of it. It's for absolutely nothing. It, you know, when I was a young man, Carl had a retrospective at the Modern and then it traveled to uh, Minneapolis. And I took a bus up to Minneapolis from Iowa to see it. And you know, when you're young, you pretend you understand more than you do. But I remember being very impressed. I think Rubens was his name, wrote the essay for the catalog. And there was a line in it that said, this work means absolutely nothing. It has zero content. And uh, what he meant was it wasn't depicting anything. It was what it was. It was doing something rather than depicting. And I guess, you know, with time, you can see that it does have a kind of content and, you know, there's an animation to it. There's, you know, when you look at a Carl, it's also, you know, 1963 and there's a knock on the door and you open it. There's a girl in a green vinyl miniskirt saying, I got some pot. You know, it's when he made, Carl made early one morning, what were the Beatles doing? 
they were singing, I want to hold your hand. <laughs> and Carl, not prophetic of it, but is taking space itself and morphing it and moving it. and It's like uh, the hallucinogenics yet to come in a way that and it wasn't that you know he was predicting that it, it was that that great work was so born in its moment in its time and he wasn't doing that because he was so hip he was doing it because he was just his art was there london 1962 he was working and he was present and that's kind of the beauty i think of it charles thank you so much you're welcome Charles Ray is at the Bourse de Commerce and the Centre Pompidou in Paris from the 16th of February and continues until the 6th of June at the Bourse and until the 20th of June at the Pompidou. Charles's exhibition Figure Ground is at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York until the 5th of June. Charles is in this year's Whitney Biennial called Quiet As It's Kept and that's at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York from the 6th of April to the 5th of September and third in a series of special installations of Charles's work at Glenstone in Potomac, Maryland continues until June 2023. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper podcast are Julia Mahouska, Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bentel. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. And a big thank you to Charles Ray. See you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.